Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, this is going to be a bit of a different episode. Uh, it's not a formal interview like we normally do. It's not me sharing my own ideas on my own like we sometimes do. Uh, this episode is going to be more like the Harry Potter music episode we did a number of years ago. Uh, this idea came about uh, around the time that I did my interview with Michael Crowell back in September of 2021. It's episode number 130. We sort of talked about things we'd like to see orchestras do and ways that we would like orchestras to, uh, I guess, interact with or connect with their audiences. And we started talking after we recorded that episode, and we thought it would be kind of cool to do our own version of that. And that's what this episode is. So you'll hear us go through the second movement of Dvorak 9 and kind of talk about what inspires us, what excites us, why we think it's such an iconic piece. And we hope that it's interesting to you to listen to uh, I want to make sure that uh, you know that if you want to get in touch with us, we say we would love your feedback. Uh, just check the description for how you would get in touch with us to let us know what you think. Uh, and then before we get into the episode, I just want to take a quick second to thank our sponsor for this podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass-playing community. As musicians, it's simply a fact that we will be spending a significant portion of our lives with our instruments. Unfortunately, many of us can feel stuck with a bad fit, fighting to get the sound we want. If you and your instrument aren't getting along right now, Houghton Horns can help. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach, and Conselmer, Eastman and Shires, Engelbert Schmid, Paxman, Tyne, Yamaha, and more. They even have vintage and consignment instruments available as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. I'm Michael Crowell. I'm the program director at the public radio station in Birmingham, Alabama. And what you're about to hear is an experiment. And what we're doing is a musical breakdown of the second movement of Dvorak Symphony Number no. 9. It's known as the New World Symphony. I am someone who has programmed classical music. I've attended concerts. I've interviewed artists. I'm quite familiar with the work, but I am not an historian. I'm joined here by Ryan Beach. Hello. Hi, I am the principal trumpet with the Alabama Symphony Orchestra, and what I hope to be able to bring is just a performer's perspective. I've played this piece a number of times. I've played professionally for almost 10 years now, um, principal trumpet in uh, both the Indianapolis Symphony and now the Alabama Symphony Orchestra, like I said. So yeah, I just hope to be able to say this is what it's like to play the piece, also bringing what I think is exciting and interesting, and then maybe even a little bit of musical know-how maybe to help us understand why certain magical moments might be that way. And we're really trying to be decidedly non 
wonky. There is, to be clear, there is value in studying a score. There is value in getting you know, way down in the weeds with what parts are doing what, when, and the history of how a piece came to be and all that. There is value in that. That's not what we're doing it here. And the reason we're not doing it here is because I think both Ryan and I believe that's not the only way that good music is spread. If you think about how music is spread, it's, hey, listen to this. There's this great scene in, in well, Chicken Run. Remember Chicken Run, oh, yeah. the movie? Oh, yeah. Where, yeah. where they're playing music and all of a sudden the one chicken's foot starts to move and she's like, what's going on? He's like, that's <laughs> called a beat, right? <laughs> like, like you just feel music. So we're, we're, we're trying to approach it from like, here's what to listen for. Uh, some of it's a feeling and we will, we'll get into a little bit of the nuance, what's going on. But, uh, does that, does that resonate with you? Absolutely. I think for me, one thing I hope to be able to share through this project is just the idea that there is a visceral nature of listening to especially all music, but especially classical music. And I think what you get with an orchestra and symphonic music is just a depth of storytelling because there's so many instruments and there's so many ways to shape a phrase and pairs of instruments and all this type of thing. And so uh, again, to, to uh, sort of reiterate what Michael was saying here, there is so much value in understanding the score, but if you don't know how to do that, there's still so much value in just being able to sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to let this piece happen. And I'm just going to let myself, you know, say, how does this make me feel? And just let that be my experience. So from the view uh, at 5,000 feet, right from the hot air balloon level, there are so many new ideas happening throughout this symphony, not just the second movement. There are so many great melodies and Dvorak repeats things all the time, but he does it in a really great creative way. He's always building, combining, adding, shaping. So it never really feels stale. So there's so much going on and that's kind of really what we're driving at. So yeah, let's go for it. All right, let's get into it. This is going to be the beginning of the second movement of Dvorak's Ninth Symphony. I do want to point out this recording we're going to be using is a recording of the Berlin Philharmonic with Raphael Kubelek. Uh, we both think it's an amazing recording and does this piece a lot of justice. So that's the recording we're going to be listening to. Let's take a listen. It's like, are we in church? What What is going on here? Where Where is this going to take us? Uh, that's my initial reaction as I hear this. Yeah, as a performer, um, I think one thing that's so uh, unique and kind of treacherous, actually, about this opening is we have just come from the, the first movement that's very aggressive and uh, articulate and loud and uh, boisterous. And then we have a bit of a pause right between the movements, and then we have this this very delicate, uh, soft, beautiful chorale. And uh, for brass players, especially, this can be, um, like I said, quite treacherous, where we have to line up all of our articulations and make sure we're breathing together at the same time. And it being soft, it can feel sometimes like 
Uh, if you play too loud, it's a big deal. And so almost we play too soft sometimes, and then it becomes hard to move air. And there's a whole bunch of things that can go into it from a performer's perspective that makes this um, this very kind of difficult at times to really make a, a special moment, I think. And as you and I have discussed previously, um, you know, you've said this is uh, atmosphere, just setting the stage for something. We don't know what it is, but something is, is coming around the bend. Yeah, well, let's find out what that something is. carefully you'll hear the bass clarinet accompaniment here it's not quite rhythmically together with it i just think it's such a, a really cool way to write this I mean, wow. If you don't love this melody, you don't love your mom. I, are, you, are you kidding me? This is so incredible for a number of reasons. It is just this drop-dead gorgeous melody. Um, and what's so great about how he does this is he does it on English horn, which is not, it's part of the oboe family, but it's not super common. It's out there, but it's not, it's not, it's not an everyday type uh, instrument when you, when you think of orchestral uh, solos mm -hmm. that way. Yeah, definitely. And it just adds so much color and it just, uh, it sounds familiar, but it sounds just different enough that it just, it draws your ears in. And as I was thinking about this, okay, symphony, you know, from the new world, maybe new world equals new sounds. You have to remember this symphony was written in the late 1890s. So mm -hmm. even back then the English horn wasn't what it is today, which is still a relatively, no disrespect to English horn players, relatively not common, I guess, if that's, if that's fair, solo especially instrument. For, yeah. Especially for a solo instrument, I think. And uh, it's definitely something for English horn players that will show up on every single audition. And I just love... Uh, the string bed atmospheric the atmosphere continues from this opening but then we just it's just total singing you know it's a time and a chance for the soloist to just tell a story really and you feel like there is a story it's a complete idea in and of itself which i find to be uh considering where we're about to head it's interesting to me how it is this complete story but yet it's not quite over with. And it's super lyrical, just super flowing. To your point, you've just come from the first movement, which is very aggressive, a lot of notes flying by. And, and Dvorak's like, hang on, 
we're going to slow it down. And it just really just draws you in, mm -hmm. not just with the melody, but with the unique instrumentation of the melody. Absolutely. Um, let's keep going, yeah? Yeah. We have another corral, very similar to the beginning, but now woodwinds instead yeah. of brass. And there's just something so pleasing to the ear when you hear like flute, oboe, clarinet together. this section so much because it's this English horn melody, but it's sad and somber and kind of wandering, you know, like wondering where we are headed, what's going to come after this. Similar to what we heard, but it's never identical. Right. Never identical. time. Feels a little bit more final than the previous time. When melodies like this come around again, I always think, well, what's different? What should I, what am I listening for in the accompaniment that may have changed? How is, how is this melody being crafted and built and structured the second time around? Mm -hmm. I think this horn prayer is such a beautiful way to end this whole section. We're about to move on to something different. It's just it, it, what he does with with melody and, and and solo instruments, two or three instruments together. You know, it's a wall of sound, but it's like it's not it's not like a super wall of sound. It's <laughs> its own kind of, as you said, that difference between playing soft versus. I don't even know if I'm making sense here, but it's it, but it's one of those um, just so subtle, draws you in. You still have no idea what's coming. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, again, this section feels, now feels complete. You know, before it felt complete in terms of the first time through, you get the whole entire English horn solo. But then that little bit of wandering, bringing it back, and then having an actual sort of conclusion, I really enjoy that at this moment, 
I'm ready for something actually new. Right. And he gives it to you he right when you're ready. You. He, 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 uh, he, just, he just he has that sense. He just knows when something is complete. But you know what? To what I was saying earlier, this is Dvorak. So don't be surprised <laughs> if this like comes around again in like a different, even more beautiful, even more interesting, fascinating way. I mean, I'm not trying to give anything away here. I'm just saying <laughs> this is what... He does. Yeah. He does it throughout this symphony. And the way these melodies come around and around again, it never gets stale. Absolutely. All right, let's keep going. So right out of the gate, this is flute and oboe which creates such a unique color when you combine them. And they, and they just, in this recording, it's blended so well together. Kind of like tiptoeing here. Yeah. Like somehow we're moving forward and suspended in, you know, at the same time. We're doing two things at once. Same material, different instruments, more activity. Right. And this is the oboe and flute just out there. As I said, I feel like they're in space, like just doing their own thing, but it all works. Like they may be in space, the strings and everyone else's, it all blends. It blends and that's what Dvorak does. Yeah. He finds a way to make it work. He makes it work. He doesn't find a way, it does work. Yeah. I love how much sort of anguish or angst or sorrow, whatever kind of descriptor you want, there's so much of that here. It's just so dark. The cello's coming back with the pizzicato bass line from earlier, but with a, tr a tremolo, gives it a shimmering feeling. It's amazing how this just feels like it's, it's not plotting. It just feels like it's going, and he can do this for measure upon measure upon mm -hmm. measure and, and just keep going with it. And you're like, yeah, I'm right with you. <laughs> totally, yeah.
sunrise. Yeah, I love that part right there because you hear it three times, dee da da da, and it's that really crunchy chord, dee da da da, a crunchy chord, dee da da dee, and yeah, the sun right. is up. Yeah. What's interesting from a from a technical standpoint, we'll get a little bit technical here. What's interesting is all that is is just a one note difference between a minor chord going into a major chord. It's in the viola part, and it's amazing how that one note changes the entire mood. Of the of the whole thing, we were in this dark, deep, sort of yeah. wandering place, and now the sun has come up, and we feel like we've landed somewhere. I mean, Dvorak, like the one chord master. I don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it's crazy. It's just it, it, it's crazy in a good way. It's, yeah, it's just there's just so much feeling and mood, and that's one chord. Like we're not we're <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, well, we're not even like well, do you really hear what's happening? I mean, you know, it's just that's how he he just has this touch, this sense. He's I don't know if you could say he was, I mean, certainly in this symphony, like the orchestration is just, is so good. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure as, you know, he had eight symphonies before this to really hone his craft. Yeah, yeah. So I think at, by this time, he probably is, has a pretty good idea of what's going on <laughs> and how to build melody and build chords and structures. Not that he didn't know, but he just benefits from his, from his own experience, I think. Yeah, and I, I've... I think that's such a cool point that can often be overlooked as we see these masters and we think they're just masters, you know, but there is an element of how he blends all this together that, um, I mean, his eighth symphony is a beautiful symphony, but this is different, you know, and I just, I think that's worth pointing out that even these people who are geniuses and masters at what they do got better from doing it and hearing their pieces and seeing how things worked out. So yeah, I think it's a really great point that, um, there's just an element of maturity that you would only have through experience. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we have hit this sunrise portion, and so let's hear, let's hear where it where it takes us. Springtime, birds chirping. We're going somewhere, right? You think? really incredible what's what's going on here first off like are we still in the slow movement like where it's such are we a difference you're right yeah um it, it, it's really incredible like i i you know you hear this and okay we're going somewhere we're definitely going so we are somewhere yeah and you know and then we get you know what i call the great melody sandwich <laughs> it's a good um, way to, yeah i mean there's so many things going on and what he's really doing is sort of hinting back at melodies that we've heard not only in this movement but in the first movement and who knows like maybe like in future movements i mean it's all kind of on the table and this is a recurring theme in the ninth symphony especially well in every movement really i mean he's, he he just hints back at other things and i think it's it's a very creative way to do it you know in part like it's 
well, just in, ca- in case, you, maybe you forgot how that how that kind of went and just want to hear it again. I mean, remember, no radio, no TV. So what are you leaving people with when they walk out of the concert hall? Well, maybe at that time you want to leave them humming something that they heard. And so he has this series of just looping back, if you will, for lack of a technical term, to like just revisit the melodies that we've that we've heard. And uh, they're just done really effectively. It's never the same way twice. And I don't know how many different things are going on at one particular point. A lot. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, this melody sandwich, as you so accurately described it. uh, There is a a bunch of different things happening. And I actually looked up. I wanted to make sure I... I, Because I even heard it myself. The most obvious thing that points out is the trombones to me. That is from the... There's a bunch of times it shows up in the first movement... In uh, the very first one is in the the, the low strings is bum 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 beam bum bum. It's a rhythmic, it's a different tonality here. But you hear that in the strings, you hear that in the low horns, and it comes back a number of times. So that's the first thing you hear. The trumpets are blaring the English horn solo. You have the uh, horns in this case and the strings playing the first half of this second flute solo. Beam beam bum bum, and then. The woodwinds are playing the other part. Boom, bum, bum, bum. So you've, like you said, it's all these themes you heard from the first movement, a little bit from the second movement as well. And he somehow just stacked them all on top of each other, and it creates this amazing cacophony of sound that somehow you can kind of understand because you've heard all these melodies before. You kind of understand what's going on, even if it sounds like a jumble. Yeah, it's like vaguely familiar. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't sound foreign. Uh, it's just like, well, in, ca- in case you forgot how it works. And, you know, I think, Ryan, you make such a great point of dissecting of how everything is, is sort of sandwiched and put together. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to say is just listen for it. Because it doesn't matter who's doing what, when, and why, and how, but that he is doing it yeah. in such a interesting way. Absolutely. And that's kind of what my point is, because you've heard all these things, we're able to understand what's happening in this outcry here. And one interesting part, we talk about these melodies that are coming back, but this thing from the third, or this thing from this section here, and the I don't think that appears anywhere else. Right. The one where he said it sounded like springtime. Yeah. I think that is unique to the second movement, this spot in the second movement. So it almost creates this sort of special thing in and of itself that this is the only time you're going to hear it and enjoy it, that kind of and thing. And Dvorak has that too, right? He, he he does this throughout this symphony too. He has, yes, there's these melodies that repeat, it, they're incredible, and he stacks it. And, but he also has these little phrases that don't repeat, yeah, but are so memorable you know, that we were talking about the sunrise uh, just a few minutes ago, you know, and this thing where I said it sounds like springtime. I mean, they don't repeat. That's okay. That's fine. But it's just like, wow. You know, he he just manages to balance all the, the stuff that repeats, all the stuff that doesn't repeat into this, you know, incredible cohesive work. Yeah. One more technical thing, because sure. it's actually going to, a little bit of a throwback to our one note change we were just talking about. <laughs> Um, the end of this big explosion of sound is in the key center of A major. We don't really need to know what that means if you don't know what that means, um, just that it is that. And then we are moving into D flat major, which is the uh, key that the English horn solo returns in. Now, between those two keys, guess how many notes of difference there are? One, One note. Yeah. <laughs> so this is how 
It's a beautiful way he does it. This is how he can kind of just slide right into this English horn solo from this thing that has nothing to do with it. And it feels that it, it just works and it's natural. And I think if I could put another way, like sonically, it what it would be like, it would be a really large jump for your ear if, if that gap were larger than a note is what I... Correct me, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but is it right? But the fact that these two notes and two keys are very similar lets you just ease Absolutely. into it in a way that's so aesthetically pleasing, you don't even realize it's happening. Yeah, and I think then all of a sudden you're back at this English horn solo and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to hear this again. And so uh, let us continue here for this uh, this final little bit of this movement. third time around for this melody, just different enough. And then here he gives it to muted strings. And there's all of these stops where we all of a sudden realize maybe we're not going somewhere. Maybe we're fading away at the end. And I think he's trying to draw you in too. Just incredible. So intimate. Tender is what I like to think of it. like a bookend. Right. Great orchestration. I mean, he just loved all instruments.
it's just reverential <laughs> at the end. It's such there. a magical ending. It's yeah. really, Dvorak really shares the love in this last section. He's got this great melody. And it's like English word, okay, this is your third time. You can you can kind of maybe chill for the rest of this. And he, he gives it to the woodwinds and the strings. And just, you know, this is the end of the piece. And he's taking it to new heights, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, that's just, you don't hear that very often. Um, you know, sometimes like, yeah, the slow movement, it just kind of fades out and it does it and it does its thing. Dvorak like magically finds this way to draw you in even further. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I mean, the idea here for me, just having listened to it a number of times, it, it really almost feels like a a full standalone piece in and of itself. You know, it is a second movement of a full symphony, but you actually, in my opinion, feel like you went through a full journey in and of itself on just this movement. And so I think it's very special. Like we said, it sort of ends with such magic. That last, those last two chords, I didn't know this until looking it up, but it's actually four basses. That's it, the four basses. So a, a very unique and interesting way to end the symphony and just so appropriate, I think. So such a great sound and color to have be the final sort of little topper. Yeah, and he could have done that chord with with cellos. He He just knows. He knows... He could have done it with cellos because the, the note was very similar in the, in, the, in the same range, but he didn't. He did it with basses. Now, why did he do that? Maybe for more like depth of sound, depth of color. You know, you don't usually hear basses quite that high, but it just, he, he, he yeah. just felt like that was what it needed to be. It's like he loves all instruments. I mean, we know in the symphony, he, lo- you know, he loves brasses, you know, of course, but, but, um, he he does the strings and woodwinds like great justice also. Well, he just seems to be, again, after listening to it a few different times, he just seems to be quite a master of understanding what certain combinations of instruments will create a certain color. It's very colorful, colorful writing. You know, it's not just I'm using the woodwinds because I haven't used them in a while. It's and it's a funny way to think about it, but it's kind of true. We we're taught or at least I was taught. Uh, in school, when I started thinking about dynamics, you know, forte or piano, loud and soft, things like that, my teacher once told me, you know, you have to ask yourself, why is this here? Why is this forte here? Why is this piano here? And the answer isn't because they haven't written forte in a, in one page. Like, it has a specific purpose for being there. And so much to what you're saying here, the idea of using four basses was for a specific sound. It wasn't just because he needed those notes covered in a certain register and what instrument will most easily be able to produce that. And so, you know, another really unique thing about this movement from a brass perspective is it's actually the only movement that the tuba is written to appear. And it's just in these chorale sections. So I think it it's another thing that it gives it sort of a really nice bottom to these chorales that the tuba itself can only really do. No other instrument can really recreate that the same way. And then he didn't use the tuba in any of the rest of the piece. And that in and of itself is fascinating because when we get to the fourth movement, or even if you know the fourth movement, especially at the end, you're like, wow, there's there's got to be a tube in there, right? There isn't. There's not. There's not. It's just bass trombone on the low end. And so I think it's just that much more to his credit that everything had a specific purpose for why it's there. It's not just 
well, I maybe want to use the English horn because who know who uses the English horn? He wants to tell a specific story with a specific um, voice, and I think that is part of what makes Dvorak special, but especially this movement and the way he does things. So, absolutely, that is our breakdown. Our our hopefully decidedly non wonky breakdown of the slow <laughs> movement of the second movement of uh, Dvorak's Symphony Number no. 9, the New World Symphony. So uh, I'm Michael Crowell, joined by Ryan Beach. And uh, if you liked it, we'd love to know. If you've got comments, we'd love to know that too. And uh, thanks for listening. Yep, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.